Okay, welcome everybody. Welcome back to Joan's Take on the Chosen as we look at season three, episode five, um, the second part of Unclean, which we started with episode four, was part one of Unclean, of, of Clean, sorry, of Clean, and now we're on the second part. So hello to everybody. It's really good to see everyone here, Kay and Jackie and Christy and Yvonne from Croatia. I got another email from a viewer in Croatia. And so it's really exciting to see that the chosen has spread and that this Catholic commentary is being listened to and watched. So welcome everybody. I started out by asking you about the opening scene in our chat to begin because I asked you about the opening scene last episode as well. But I think it's, it was pretty controversial, and I think there's a number of reasons why it's controversial. So let's just start by talking about it. Um, you know, now we know, we have a glimpse, because of this opening scene, now we have a glimpse of what Eden has been struggling with and what's gnawing at Eden, that it's not just um, this little spat she's having with Peter, but there's something really deep that has been troubling her. So. I'm going to say from the beginning, is this realistic? I I can't, I don't think it is. So um, number one, the timing of this season is really hard for me to reconcile. And I, if I would have had more time, I would have really tried to watch the episodes, you know, for the third or fourth time and tried to figure out the timing. But it's really hard for me to reconcile timing. How long was Peter gone? How far along was she? Um, for her miscarriage to look like this, and I'm seeing in the chat kind of the, the question about the male doctor, right? At that time, it would have either been her mother and with a midwife. Um, she probably wouldn't have gone to a male doctor. Are they just doing that so we know what's happening? You know, that's also not how women gave birth in that position. But again, like, you don't have time to catechize, like, teach people, not catechize, but like, you don't have time to teach people how women gave birth. So was it just easier? to show it this way so we knew what was happening. So I think all in all, it's not very realistic. Um, again, the timing of the season, how far along was she? Um, it's The timing of the season is difficult for me because we're, we're gonna see in episode seven, the, um, the, the Feast of Purim, which is found in the Book of Esther. And that's a spring festival, but we've just celebrated Rosh Hashanah, which is a fall festival. So they must have been on their journey for a really long time, the, uh, the uh, disciples, but we don't see kind of that passage of time in other ways. Like the olive oil business certainly isn't off the ground. And so I had some issues kind of with timing, especially when we started, when I saw that we were going to celebrate Purim, I was like, how are we already to Purim? Um, so anyway, that I'm sure the writers have thought about this because that's what writers do. But that to say, I don't think the opening scene is very realistic, but I can see why they're doing it. And we will talk more about it in episode eight. But I think it's important to see that this cross that Eden's carrying is real and it's a big one. And we all know women who've suffered miscarriages. Some of you have suffered miscarriages. And I'm glad that this immense hidden suffering, this this hidden cross is being talked about both now more in modern culture. There are um, places for people to, um, you know, to grieve this. It's accepted that this is a grieving 
And I'm glad the Chosen's dealing with it because I think it's a huge, um, it's something we need to talk about more as a society. And as a church that's pro-life, we need to do a much better job talking about it and ministering to women. So um, for the purpose of this episode, I can also see why they created this kind of dramatic, bloody scene that was it appropriate when people from The Chosen are from all different age groups? I'm not quite sure, but I can see for the purposes of this episode that we this imagery is going to create a dramatic foil between Eden, who's not healed, and Veronica, who is. So it's interesting. I can see why they're doing it, um, but I know it was kind of a controversial beginning to the episode. So there's obviously a few main storylines to this or main characters in this in this episode. So I'm going to talk about some of the other storylines and then get right into the two main storylines. Right. So just some kind of cursory notes. Um, I loved Zebedee. I still don't know where this whole olive oil thing's going and, you know, the olive grove. Will it be a basis for some parables? Maybe like will Jesus be in there. Um, You know, we'll see. But I loved Zebedee's point of view that his legacy is waiting for the Messiah as much as it was fishing. And so many have waited and waited and and sort of be there the moment that he comes. I I just love that reminder of this legacy that that Zeb was given by his father. His father fished and waited for the Messiah. And now, you know, he's, you know, his own sons are, are now followers of the Messiah. So I liked that scene, even if I don't understand where the olive grove's going. Um, I loved, um, you know, Nathaniel and, and Tad are, are meeting Veronica and I, I'm glad Nathaniel, it's very in character for him to continue to speak his mind. So I think that's important. We don't, we don't want to lose, like, we know that about Nathaniel from scripture that he speaks his mind. And so I like that they've continued in that character that he says these things and everyone's like, what, why, you know, and it's repeatedly, sometimes it's kind of hidden in the episode and it's a kind of almost a throwaway line and you don't realize who's saying it. And then when you realize it's him, you're like, of course it's him who said that, like he has no filter. And I really like that because we know that from scripture that there's no duplicity, like what you get, what you have is what you get. So when they, they're talking to Veronica, you know, she said, if I could just touch his garment and they say, well, that's superstition. And it's not, it's faith. And I think that's a really important line that we're going to touch about, touch on very shortly. We have that relationship between Gaius and Peter coming back. And um, again, would they work together? Probably not. But this is how this friendship's being built. And so I'm going to kind of give it a a pass. But I will say when Gaius, I want to know if anybody else had this reaction. When Gaius said he had a son and a servant boy. Did anybody else cheer out loud? I outright cheered out loud. As soon as he said he has a son. So we knew, we found out last time that he has a wife, right? So we're getting a little glimpse into Gaius. I have wanted for so long Gaius to be who I he is, but he needed a family. He needed a servant. And I... Yeah, I cheered out loud when Gaius said he had a son and a servant that was like a son. And I thought, hallelujah, we have our centurion. So I don't know if anybody else was as excited as I was about that. Jesus is back. And 
he knows something's wrong with Eden. I mean, it doesn't take the Messiah to realize that something's wrong with Eden, right? But just the the looks he gives her, um, he, he, remember, he sees her. Well, he told her he sees her. She's probably doubting that by now, right? Um, but I, I, you know, she, but she doesn't share. And that's going to be key, right? So there is something wrong. She's not sharing it. And I think that's an important um, component to this relationship. So we have Jesus back and Jesus is talking to his disciples. And this all comes from Matthew 9. So we're going to be looking today at Matthew 9 and Mark 5. Those are our two um, passages that I'm going to be looking at, diving into the scripture itself. So if you have your Bible, you you might want to open it up to Matthew 9. And so they have this discussion about fasting. Well, we find this question in Matthew 9, 14. And I I loved how they worked this in with these characters, because in Matthew 9, 14, we have, then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The way they packaged this was that it was Jesus's apostles who asked him, saying like, we're going to be questioned about this. But notice they chose Philip to say it, who was a disciple of John. And so I love when they, you know, maybe play with the scriptures a little bit, um, but they don't. They stay faithful in a really creative way. The disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast. So first of all, this is, I love the catechesis that they did. They did better catechesis about this passage than most priests do in their homilies on this. The reason that people were fasting was awaiting the Messiah. You'd ever hear that. Have you ever heard that in a homily? That's why they're fasting. They're fasting for the Messiah. And so obviously when the Messiah comes, why would they fast? And I love that they brought that out, that they, they mentioned that. Again, sometimes the chosen does better catechesis than we're getting in scripture exegesis and scripture study. So that is why they fasted. They fasted for the Messiah, awaiting the Messiah. And now the Messiah has come. I also loved when, you know, we read it in scripture that he says, you know, the days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them and then they will fast. And we're like, oh, we know what that means. But they wouldn't have known. And and Dallas doesn't, um, the writers, I should say, really put themselves in these situations and think, like, what would it be like to hear that without knowing the end of the story? And I think they do that really well in The Chosen. What would it have been like to hear that phrase? First of all, it's kind of confusing. I love how Andrew's like, I'll be the first one to admit I don't get it, right? But it's also, it's just important that, you know, what would they have thought when he says taken away from them? Um, and so they ask him that. And I, I just love the way the writers are able to strip away our knowledge of the end of the story and say, what would I have thought? You know, what would I have thought? So he tells him these parables. I love that he's actually using the wineskin that Eden has to teach. This is the way many of the parables would have happened. He's using material things. He's using images they're used to. And he's probably like, when he tells a parable of the sower, he's probably talking about a guy over there that's sowing. And he's like, hey, guys, look. So I think this is very natural. Um, very, very natural. I love Jesus's face when they're confused. And, you know, Andrew, I'll be the first to admit I don't get it. So if we continue in Matthew 9 here, um, 
if we begin with, if we continue with Matthew 9, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts and the wine is spilled, you know, and both. Are, so he's telling this. And then what does it say in 18? While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter's just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. So what we see um, is a combination of Matthew 9 and Mark 5. So in Mark 5, we have um, um, that, that he is saying, my daughter's at the point of death. So Jesus has returned from pagan territory, is walking. There's this great crowd. And Jairus comes to him in the crowd and says, my daughter's at the point of death. Come and that she may be made well. So there, we're having a combination of Matthew, same person, um, told differently, Matthew 9 and Mark 5. So as he's in Matthew 9, we have this exact scene. He's talking about fasting. As he's talking about this fasting, then they come, right? Then, then they come and they get him. Um, and I love how he says, like, I know you. Like, Jesus says, like, why do you have this faith? You don't know me. And he says, I do know you. I do know you. And it's because he studied. And I think it's a great reminder to us. Like, how did he know Jesus? He had never met Jesus. He had never heard a podcast about Jesus. He knew Jesus because he had studied Jesus, right? He had studied the Old Testament. He had studied the Hebrew scriptures. He had studied accounts of Jesus. This man had studied the scriptures. And that's how we know Jesus, too. You know, we'll find out later the woman with the hemorrhaging knows Jesus through another. She knows him through Simon Z's brother. And so some people come to know Jesus through others, through us as evangelists. And some people come to know him through study. And so it's important to see these encounters and again, see how am I going to encounter Jesus even more? I'm going to tell his story to others and I'm going to encounter him more through the scriptures. Before we move on to Veronica, I'm going to look at some of your, the, the, the chat is going and I love that. Um, I always try to keep an eye on the chat. Sometimes I can't respond to everything in the chat, but I'm going to look quickly at the chat. I love how when you, sometimes you guys respond to each other and that's important too. Um, Dan I, brings out a good point here in the chat you know, you would think that Eden would interact with the other women more, giving her an opportunity to share. I do think that's interesting about Eden's character. She stays very much to herself, which I think wouldn't be really realistic at the time. She's living alone without Peter. Where, why, you know, why isn't she living with the other women? Why isn't she traveling with the other women? And that's something I too struggle with Eden. You know, this pregnancy, depending on how far along it was, I think this pregnancy would have been known amongst the women and her her miscarriage would have been known. So again, I think a lot of this is for the sake of, you know, they need her to be carrying a cross that's hidden. They've said this in the after show. The writer said, you know, we had to find a cross that wasn't a, a suffering that wasn't immediately apparent. And so it has to be something that's not seen. And, um, and so it's gradually revealed. So some of this is for the purpose of the payoff that's going to come in episode eight. And we're going to talk more about it then. Um, but yes. So um, Jackie says, I got more than just he studied Jesus. Didn't he know Jesus through the faith he was developing? Yes. And so, you know, he he's beginning to have this faith. Uh, but, you know, when he says, I know you, he's coming to knowledge and he's coming to faith. 
through these witness accounts through Joseph of Arimathea, which I think it has to be Joseph of Arimathea. I agree. And, um, through, um, you know, the old Testament prophecies. So, um, Jackie says, I think every woman's journey with miscarriage is different. And Eden is characterized in one way. I think that's an excellent point. I think everyone deals with grief differently. My only struggle with is what would a, what would be customary in a Jewish time at a Jewish home? And I think women, while they didn't talk openly about pregnancy and actually women would go kind of in seclusion when their due date was nearing, like they didn't talk about that openly with men. Um, I, I do think on the whole, we want to make sure we're not seeing Eden as someone living in 2023, but that really Eden is a Semitic woman living in a small Jewish village. And so that's where I kind of grapple with, but none of us were there. So we don't know. Um, but what was, I mean, that's why I loved actually the Eden Veronica exchange, because I think a woman who, who went through some of this, like even if the woman was only unclean for a few days a month would still have this sympathy for a woman in Veronica's place who was, you know, obviously unclean for years. And so I think women at that time would have shared, possibly shared more, but maybe not. Maybe I'm completely off base. But Eden is very, very private. I just wonder about her living alone and, and not being with the other women. Okay, let's talk about these two scenes. We'll talk first about Veronica, and then we'll talk about Jairus, and then I want to kind of talk about what I think is, so you want to stay to the end, because the end is going to be the payoff for this episode. I think it really, why... I want to tie it all together and I want to bring it together with um, Christ and what we know from the scriptures. Okay. So we have this crush of people. I don't know whether I had ever really pictured how this happened. I love seeing these scenes. I love these stories. I've written a whole Bible study session on this story. So I really enjoyed seeing it play out, seeing people's reactions. You know, you know that Jairus would have been intensely grieved finding out that his daughter had died in his absence. And so we read the scriptures and we know, but to see it, right? I just, I, I love to see these scenes play out. And I, I think these scenes are very powerful. They're very familiar stories to some of us, but to see them, I think is really beautiful. Such beautiful imagery reminded me of, you know, this, the encounter with Mary Magdalene, right? My daughter, look up right? Look up and, 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 and just like this, I think Jonathan just has such an overwhelming presence of comfort and healing. Um, that was really, really beautiful. Um, Wendy says she would have been unclean and carrying the shame of failure. I, so again, it's a big timing issue because I don't know how long she would have been unclean for. We don't know when this miscarriage happened. Maybe they're leaving a lot of this kind of vague um, because the timing is kind of hard to reconstruct. But we don't know when this miscarriage happened. Would she have been unclean? Discharge of blood, she would have been unclean. But so I don't know. It's it's just it's it's difficult. Um, so Christy says this was an episode that was not clicking with me. I was frustrated until this part. Yeah, I think this is a huge payoff. OK, so such a great scene, right? Who touched you? everyone's touching you, right? What do you, you know, so just to visualize what we've always read in scriptures, she's obviously afraid to come forward because 
she is going to, she made him unclean by touching him. And we're going to talk more. I'm going to set this side. So we're going to talk a lot about ritual impurity at the very end. Okay. So I'm going to set that aside. Um, Jesus addresses her with such tenderness. And we see this in the scriptures, my daughter. So Jairus's daughter and this woman are connected very clearly. It's, it's one of the times in scripture where we have a story within a story. And so they're clearly connected. And what we have to ask is why? Why are they connected? And one of the reasons is, one of the reasons they connect them besides putting the story in the same is my daughter, my daughter, 12 years, 12 years. And so Jesus addresses this woman with tenderness. And, and I think we, and this isn't just in the chosen, this is in scripture that he wanted her to know his love. It wasn't just enough to cure her of her bleeding because he could have kept walking. And if he hadn't spoken to her, you know, she would have gone on her way knowing that he healed her, but she may have felt guilty. She didn't really know what happened. She would have left not knowing Christ, but he wanted her to know him. He wanted her to be healed more than just physically. He wanted her to be restored. He wanted not just physical restoration, but spiritual restoration. And that's a huge theme in this season and in this episode. If we look at the account in Mark, so in Mark 5, there's a word that's repeatedly used in this story within a story. And it's in Mark 5.23, Mark 5.28, and Mark 5.34. And it's the same Greek word, sozo. It's used in these three verses. Now, different translations will translate the word differently. Sometimes it'll be made well. Sometimes it'll be made whole. Sometimes it'll be cured. For example, in 28, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Jairus says, my little daughter's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. So it has different connotations. The deepest connotation is made obvious in verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Oh, huh, that's funny. I'm using the ESV. And if you look in the RSV, I believe, and maybe the NAB, um, that's funny. I didn't look at the ESV beforehand. The, the deepest connotation is in verse 34. And in most translations, not the ESV, in most translations, it's your, your faith has saved you. So sozo can mean a lot of different things, but its deepest meaning is saving, is being saved. And so that's what, you know, both these women need cures. The little girl needs a, needs a cure or to be raised from the dead. This woman needs a cure, but Jesus is ready to do something much deeper. He's ready to do something even more radical than raise her from the dead. He's ready to save. And so this is going to play into this idea of ritual impurity that we're going to look at at the end. So why does she grab his tassel and what is his tassel? Well, we find in Numbers 15 that, um, okay, Wendy says NSRV, NRSV is made you well. So maybe the New American is our winner. If somebody has a New American, um, throw it open, people, and see. I It must be the New American that says your faith has saved you. So go New American. I rarely say that about the New American translation. But um, yeah. So let's look at the tassel. In Numbers 15, God commands that the Israelites are to wear tassels to remind them of his covenants 
and or sorry of of the commandments and of a pursuit of holiness. And so we find in Numbers 15 38 to 41, we're doing a lot of diving into scripture today, which I love. Numbers 15 38 to 41, we read, speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout their generations they are to make tassels for the corner of their garments, fastening a violet cord to each corner. When you use these tassels, the sight of the cord will remind you of all the commandments of the Lord and you will do them. Thus, you will remember to do all my commandments and will be holy to your Lord. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I, the Lord, your God. So these tassels, which you still see Hasidic Jews wearing today, these tassels were to remind them of the commandments and to remind them that the Lord wants to make them holy. Now, why? First of all, I want to point out that these tassels are essentially Jewish sacramentals. So what is a sacramental? A sacramental is something given to us to inspire faith, to remind us of the faith. So they're not sacraments, but they lead us to the sacraments. They don't confer grace the way sacraments confer grace. Rather, it's the faith we bring to their use. And so sacramentals include my miraculous medal I'm wearing, a crucifix that I keep on my desk, um, the sacred picture, the icon of the Trinity that's behind me on the wall. These are sacramentals, holy water, pilgrimages, um, the vows made, um, the blessing of an abbot, the palms on Palm Sunday, the ashes we'll receive next Wednesday. So sacramentals are material things to remind us of God's grace. They don't confer grace themselves but the faith we bring to their use confers grace, okay? That's why they're not magic charms. They're not amulets. Um, the pre, one of the priests, he wrote this beautiful book called Externals of the Catholic Faith. He says, to put one's trust in charms is to imagine that inanimate objects such as these could protect against disease. That's superstition. But he says, you know, that's not what we're doing with sacramentals. He said, the Catholic, unlike the pagan, does not trust in these on account of in inherent virtue, which he imagines them to have, or supposed magical power, he puts his trust only in the living God, who through the prayers of the church blesses these material things and bids her children to keep and use them as memorials of him, as symbols of his merciful providence. And so by the blessing that, you know, this was this was blessed by the Holy Father, that blessing, then that's where the, the grace comes. It's my use of this, my seeing of it. Why am I having this little lesson about sacramentals? Because that's what the tassels essentially were, right? The tassels were to be signs to the Israelites of the commandments, to remind them to keep the commandments. You know, I call my tattoo my unlikely sacramental because when I see it, I'm reminded. I'm reminded of what Christ did for me. I'm reminded of the cross. I'm reminded that he's carrying the cross with me. And I'm reminded that I pressed this thing to the Holy Sepulchre itself, which means that Christ rises from the dead. And I rise from the dead. So sacramentals are reminders to us. And so these tassels are reminders to the Jews. Okay. Why do I take that little, um, that little lesson down, you know, little turn down the road of talking about sacramentals. That's exactly how she's cured. You know, the, the apostles say, well, that's superstition. And she says, no, it's, it's, it's faith, right? It's her faith that's going to cure her. And that's what Jesus says, right? It's not my cloak that cured you. It was your faith. And that's a beautifully Catholic teaching on relics, 
on sacramentals, right? Why do the people in Acts reach out to touch the cloaks of the apostles? Why do they lay the sick so that Peter's shadow passes over them? That's what Jesus has taught, that this faith in material things, I don't think the material thing has power, but it's my faith realizing that encountering Christ, touching a symbol, touching a material thing is good for my faith. Okay, so I thought it was really beautiful that the tassels, in a sense, are Jewish sacramentals. And that's exactly the same theology. That's why she's cured, because she reaches out in faith. It's not power in the in the tassel. It's the power of Christ. But that's an instrument for because she has the faith. That's an instrument for grace. I hope that makes sense. Why was it the tassel? Another option is, um, another theory is here we have, she's seeking to be holy. She's looking for, you know, God said to put these tassels on your cloak, remembering to do my commandments and you will be holy to your God. I, the Lord, am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. She's reaching out. She wants to be holy. She is reaching out for Christ. She wants him to bring her out of exile the way he brought her ancestors out of exile. I, the Lord, am your God. Another really interesting thought is if you read the prophecy of Malachi, Malachi 4.2, which if you did my Advent study a couple years ago, we talked about this prophecy. Malachi 4.2 says, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. So it's a messianic prophecy that the Messiah will come and he will bring healing. The word, the Hebrew word for wings here is the same as the word for corner in Numbers 15. Speak to the Israelites and tell them that throughout their generations, they are to make tassels for the corner of their garments. And so we could essentially say, but to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his corners, with healing in his tassels. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. So we have this amazing scene. It's beautiful. Um, God works through material objects and this woman is healed. And he, he wants her to know. He wants her to encounter him. And she's worried because she's made him unclean. And we're going to talk about that in a second. First, we want to talk about Jairus. So if, if that's not exciting enough, now we have um, the synagogue official, right? So synagogue officials weren't priests. They were they were essentially lay, lay people who are working at the synagogue. So we've met Jairus. Now we found out at the end of last episode, his daughter essentially died, um, right? They say at the beginning of this episode, it took a lot to bring her back. So he goes to find Christ and... They're now they've arrived, you know, it had, he had to have been antsy during the whole woman scene, right? Like, Hey woman, like I, I, I kind of wish they would have shown that he, he looked way too calm. And I would have been like, Hey, no, I have the teacher, like he's mine and he's doing my miracle. And why are we stopping? Right. Anyway. Um, did you, so they arrive at his house and, um, Gina says, would the woman have known of Malachi's prediction? It's probably, so I am of the, I have a, I'm of the thought that the Jews knew a lot of scripture more than us and had it memorized because remember most of them didn't read. And so they would have just been told the scriptures, heard the scriptures. They would be hearing it again and again and again. It's not like they would listen to it on, 
you know, Shabbat. And then they would go on and like watch, you know, the news on Monday and like football on Tuesday. Right. So or sitcoms. Right. So the 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 writings of scripture were everything to them. And so they probably had large amounts memorized. So the woman would have heard this prophecy at some point, it seems to me. Um, so they arrive at Jairus's house and, you know, the, the, the idea of the mourners being hired, that's, that's a real thing. The, they quote in the episode, they quote the Mishnah actually. So the Mishnah, the writings of the rabbi quotes a rabbi who declares, quote, even the poorest in Israel should hire not less than two flutes and one wailing woman for his wife's funeral. And so they do a good job just quoting straight from the Mishnah in the episode. And so we see these mourners laughing and ridiculing Jesus when he comes to save the girl because they, they're like, she's dead. Like we've been hired to grieve. And um, it's beautiful. One of the scripture scholars um, I read, I, I don't recommend everything he says, but I loved this quote. His name is William Barclay. And if you're going to read him, read him with some discretion because he believes some wacky things but he says the mourners were so luxuriating in their grief that they even resented hope i thought that was really amazing right he obviously said that about the actual account of scripture and not <laughs> the chosen episode but like they they were so like ready to grieve they resented that jesus would even come and give any hope right so jesus says she's only asleep there's lots of possibilities for why he said this. In a sense, he could be speaking about the fact that all of us, when we die, we essentially fall asleep until the second, until our, you know, we 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 live in heaven, and so we all, you know, that's why, um, you know, we we don't believe in cities of the dead. We believe in cemeteries, right? We don't call them necropolises. They're cemeteries from the from the word for dormitory, dorm like sleeping. They're sleeping places, um, and so. Yes, they also, you're right, the mourners also wanted to get paid. And so they were annoyed that they might be sent away and not get paid when they showed up. So he's, she's only asleep. There's lots of possibilities why Jesus said this. I really like the way um, they, they connected it to him wanting to keep secret. Um, because this way we can say, oh, no, right? She was just asleep, right? Because he wants that messianic secret to continue. Um, so he goes and he. Um, you know, he raises her from the dead. And did you notice Talitha Kum, they translated it little lamb, and that might have surprised some people, but the word for girl in Aramaic is actually um is derived from the word for lamb. And so it's a it's an affectionate address. So they kind of like doubled down on the affection that Jesus had, which I thought was really tender and really beautiful. And it's straight from Mark 5.43. He gave strict orders that no one should know about this and said that she should be given something to eat. So that's exactly what he does, right? Okay, I want to go back to kind of this idea of ritual impurity and what's happening. You know, Christy pulls out in the comments, and I think this is really good, the steps that Veronica took to be healed, looking for, seeking out Jesus, touching him, is in contrast to Eden, who seems to have distanced herself from Jesus, even though she's in her own house. So I really think Veronica and Eden are supposed to be foils here. And we see it in the, you know, the idea of the blood, the idea of the healing, um, the idea of how they go to seek Jesus, or they don't, you know, Eden knows Jesus, and she doesn't seek him out the way Veronica seeks him out. 
so I think that's um, really, really important. Um, everybody's saying they wish he used Aramaic words. I thought the same thing, but then I, I thought I would have loved him to say, cause we're so used to hearing that in, in, in at mass. And when we hear this reading, but I wonder if part of it is they're not using Aramaic other times. And he would have been using Aramaic this whole time. Like all of this would have been in Aramaic, except when they were in synagogue and they would be praying in Hebrew. So I wonder if it's just, you know, it, you know, like we didn't say everything in Aramaic. So why would we just say this one phrase in Aramaic? But I just want to hear Jonathan say it like it, in his accent would be great. So but that is why he says little lamb instead of little girl. It's possible that Talitha Kum is kind of translated little lamb based on where girl, little girl. It's also a derivative of the word lamb. It's just a little bit more affectionate. Um, so, okay, so let's talk about ritual impurity. Why would you put together, I want to look at why are these two stories together? And I think in doing that, then we go back to Eden and we bring it all together. So it all goes back to the broken cistern. And I know that sounds funny, but it all goes back to the broken cistern. So did you notice Peter quotes from Jeremiah when he's talking to Gaius, right? So there's this beautiful line in Jeremiah 2.13, two evils my people have done. Again, that's Jeremiah 2, 13. I'm trying not to say all the scripture verses too quickly. Two evils my people have done. They have forsaken me, the source of living waters. They have dug themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Um, this is beautiful, right? And how often we do this in our own life. We reject the person who has all the answers to our problems, and we go try to find new answers to our problems when Jesus is, when God's there with all the answers to our problems. So I don't want your water. I'm going to go find water myself, right? That is a recipe for disaster. I don't want the Lord, the one Lord. I want to worship all these other Lords, right? I don't want to, you know, do X, Y, Z. I want to go be rich and, you know, do my own thing, right? So, so um, the broken cistern is an image in Jeremiah. And this living water is a uh, common Old Testament image that God is the source of water that God gives water, that God, you know, you, he is like a, uh, uh, a tree planted near running water whose leaves never fade. It makes sense then when Jesus in John 7 will say, he who believes in me, as the scriptures say, rivers of living water will flow from within him. That's kind of controversial, right? Because first of all, we don't really know He's just saying, as the scriptures say, he's kind of generally, there's no scripture verse that says that, but he's speaking generally of the fact who gives living waters, God. So when he says that, he is saying he's God. That's kind of a big deal, right? So living water, source of water, giving water as the deer longs for running streams, it's all in the, the Old Testament. You know what else was referred to as living water? The mikvah, that ceremonial ritual washing um, so some cases of ritual impurity, some of them, not all, some required bathing in a pool of water called a mikvah. And so there were specific rules about what kind of water could be used in these purity baths. One of the rules is that only immersion in flowing water could purify. That's what was valid. You had to have flowing water. And so what did they call this? They called it living water. Okay. So now we've connected this broken cistern to Jeremiah to they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water when 
God is the source of living waters. But now we have this idea of ritual impurity being cleansed. How? By living water. Later in the season, we'll see a mikvah. But today, in this episode, we see the Sea of Galilee. And we know the Sea of Galilee was used as a mikvah. Why? Because it's flowing living water. And so that's what you see at the end of this episode. That's why the woman goes into the Sea of Galilee. That's why Jesus and his apostles go to the Sea of Galilee. And so what connects these two storylines? Why do we have this connection, this very clear connection between Jairus's daughter, the raising of Jairus's daughter, and the woman with the hemorrhage? What connects them is ritual impurity. Touching the woman with, the, 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 um, with, with blood, ritual impurity. Touching Jairus's daughter because she's dead, ritual impurity. Remember, I said this earlier, but ritual impurity does not equal sin. Because much of more normal life included things that would make you impure. Um, you know, a, a, a woman um, for, was impure for a period of time after childbirth. Husband and wife were both impure following the sexual act. But yet God tells us to be fruitful and multiply. Coming into contact with a corpse rendered you impure. But God says you have to bury the dead, right? That's one of the, the, the biggest obligations to a Jew is to bury a, de- the, um, um, a dead relative because it's a, a favor that cannot be repaid. So obedience to God's commands results in, at times, ritual impurity. So it's clear that contracting ritual impurity does not, in and of itself, is not a sin. But the purity laws concern coming into contact with the sacred. So if you were ritually impure, you could not enter the temple. You could not worship at the temple. Depending on how you became impure, you might then wash in the mikvah. It depends, right? Um, I love um, Amy Jill Levine, who um, I like some of her work. I kind of put her in that class. Like I, I would read her with discretion. She's not Christian. And I think to remember that she's a New Testament scholar who's Jewish. And so she brings a beautiful in. She brings some beautiful insights into Christianity that we don't have without our Jewish glasses on. So Amy Jill Levine relates this bathing in the mikvah before going into the temple to the Catholic priest's practice of washing his hands. You know, she says, like, if it's just about, like, physical hygiene, he'd use hand sanitizer. But he doesn't. He washes his hand because this is, um, there's more to it, right? It's, it's not just a physical impurity. There's this idea of, I'm about to come into contact with the sacred. And so that's the same thing with the mikvah. So remember, Veronica, can't, Veronica could not fully participate in covenant worship. She could not fully participate in the temple worship. And so Jesus becomes ritually impure by coming into contact with her. Jesus becomes ritually impure by coming into contact with the little girl. But we don't see the contagiousness of impurity here. We have the contagiousness of purity. Jesus removes what makes them impure. Remember, he's like, well, she wasn't bleeding anymore. Jesus restores them to a state of ritual purity. He removes what barred them, what prevented them from participation in the covenant worship in the temple. Why? Because he's living water. Because Jesus is the mikvah. Throughout his public ministry, Jesus is not ignoring purity laws. He's not dismissing purity laws. And I think he, in a sense, in this episode, he treated them a little lightly. 
Um, and I think it's just to show kind of the controversy, but Jesus doesn't ignore them. He fulfills them. He transcends them. He transforms them. And in Jesus, the process of purification has been transformed and been fulfilled. So Jesus restores this woman to ritual purity. In the home of Jairus, she, he restores that home. The whole home would have been unclean. Jesus brings new living water, his spirit, his grace. That's what he's told the Samaritan woman, right? The Samaritan woman at the well. I've come to bring you new water. And so he removes the obstacles to participating in temple worship because he is going to be the temple, his body. And so the temple's sacred because it's where God dwells. And we have to prepare ourselves to enter into the sacredness, into where God dwells. Well, today God comes to dwell in each of us in Holy Communion. Access to the temple in Jerusalem is no longer about entering the sacredness of a place. But the new temple is about receiving the sacredness of the new temple into our bodies. And so the purity we need to concern ourselves, and this is what Jesus is saying, the purity you need to concern yourself with is no longer the ritual purity. That was merely a preparation. Now we need to concern ourselves with the purity of our souls to receive Holy Communion. Am I in a state freed from sin that I can receive Holy Communion? Am I in a state to receive his divine mercy in the sacrament of confession? And so we see that Jesus, the living water, comes to give us his mercy. And I see someone rightly so, Jackie in the comments, rightly so, said, it's a parallel to divine mercy. This ocean of mercy he wishes to give because he is the mikvah. And that's why Jesus has given us a way to encounter him today in the sacraments. Because he still wants to do the work that we see him doing in this these scenes. He wants to say to you, little girl, arise. Because he knows that you need healing. And so he's instituted the sacraments. He's given us a church so that his public ministry does not just exist in 33 AD. But his public ministry continues to exist. And he continues to say, little girl, arise. Your faith has saved you when he speaks to us in confession. When he speaks to us. So what's the purpose of this episode? That Jesus has come not to dismiss ritual purity laws, but to fulfill them, to be the living water, to give these people the water that they're thirsting for. They've built broken cisterns. It's not working. But return to the Lord. The Lord has come into your midst to be your living water, to bring you healing. And at the very end, we have Veronica like seeing this release. You know, she does, she goes to the mikvah because that's what is expected of her. So she goes and she 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 um, seeks out this ritual cleanliness in the mikvah, but we also see him her um, you know ridding herself of the cloth that she no longer needs right with that knife, and I you see the rope right just like we saw last time the rope there's that imagery of the knots Peter tying the knots, now she's cutting her knots, she's cutting what has what has restricted her, what has imprisoned her she's cutting away the knots Jesus has undone them. And tragically, at the end of the episode, we see Eden, who's not allowing Jesus to undo her knots. She's not there yet. So Peter's and, Peter and Eden still have their knots because they haven't come to the living water. They haven't come to seek the forgiveness 
and the mercy and the love and the healing that only the Lord can bring. I hope that all makes sense. So I think there's a lot in this episode. Um, you know, it, there were things that were not my favorite. I wasn't crazy about the opening, but I think it was there for a reason. And I think there's a lot of themes that come out. If you have any, um, if you have any questions, throw them in the chat now before we wrap up. But I think there's, it's a powerful scene. It's a powerful episode because these are scenes that we're so familiar with. I loved seeing them in action. And, you know, there's a lot to think about. Who am I in this story? Am I the woman coming to Christ with faith? Am I Jairus coming to him with faith? Or am I Eden, who's still not quite sure, who's still holding on to some wounds, who's afraid to surrender? Um, who is maybe a little bitter and resentful. Um, you know, it's amazing that Veronica is not, she does not appear to be bitter and resentful. In fact, she seems very kind of resigned that this is who she is, but then the hope that maybe something could be different with Jesus. So, um, I'm just reading over your comments. Um, yeah, Dan, I agree. Simon wouldn't be working with Gaius. Um, I mean, Gaius, you're right. Like Gaius has all these people that report to him. Why would Gaius not just assign somebody? But, you know, I think one of the themes for me in this season is there's a lot of storylines that I don't think would happen, but need to happen and are going to pay off. And so whether it's the, you know, they're being, they're not being a midwife in that opening scene and it being unrealistic that this is the way it would have happened. Is it unrealistic that guys and Peter are working together? But in the end, I think we, I'm going to give the writers a pass because some of this just needs to happen. Uh, hopefully people can, you know, do some research. I, I should recommend everybody listen to this podcast to kind of differentiate what we should take from the episode and what we should say. Yeah, probably not. Um, Gina says, would the ritual washing be done privately as the women did in this episode or would a rabbi oversee? Um, that's a good question. And I actually don't know. Um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I could kind of see both ways and I, I don't know. I can find that answer out. Um, I agree that the writers don't know about Our Lady of Endure of Knots, but it's a great, it's a great imagery. Um, oh, everybody's commenting on that. I love Our Lady of Endure of Knots. Um, side question. Are we not seeing Mary because she's still in Nazareth or she's in Bethany? So remember um, at the end of that episode, Jesus encouraged her to spend some time at Bethany with Mary and Martha because he kind of wanted her to get out of Nazareth after he got out of Nazareth. So it's possible that she's in Bethany. We haven't heard mention of that. Um, Jackie says, I see Veronica as Veronica during the passion. We talked about that in last episode and I agree. I think Veronica is going to come back. And I think Joseph, yet yeah, Rabbi Yusuf is Joseph of Arimathea. So I think we're meeting a lot of the characters in the passion. And it makes sense that these people didn't just show up the day Jesus died, right? They they were growing in faith with him. Um, okay, well, thank you so much. It's been great to be with you, to see you all. Tell others about this podcast. I think it's there's a lot of people that are, um, you know, discovering The Chosen for the first time. So, you know, I've, I've done commentary on all the episodes up till now. You can find them on YouTube. You can find them on Apple Podcasts. You can find them on Spotify. Please encourage your friends. If you can give me a thumbs up here on this channel, if you thumb up this video, um, it helps other people find it. And a lot of people are finding it now. I'm very excited 
partly because I want to have these intelligent conversations. I don't want people thinking that just because it's in the chosen means it's in scripture. I want to have these good conversations. I want to talk about the chosen through the lens of a Catholic. And I think we can really grapple with some of these things. And so share it, tell people about it. And just a side note, um, if you know somebody who does web design, does website work, or does social media, I'm specifically looking for possibly an intern who might want to work for a Catholic, like maybe they're at the university and they're getting their degree in social media marketing and they need an internship, but they'd rather work for a Catholic, please reach out to me. Um, I'm really easy to find. I'm looking for help in the social media world or in web design world. And so just throwing that out there because I know a lot of people hear this, a lot of people see this. And if you know a young person who's looking to work for a Catholic, who's looking to even just intern, get their feet wet, try out some things and want to do a faith-based project, uh, please reach out to me. So one last plug, and I meant to do it at the beginning. I was on a podcast last week. It aired um, over the weekend called Take Every Thought Captive. It's the Catholic Studies Academy podcast. So Apple Podcasts, just search Catholic Studies Academy. And we just did a really great episode. Um, I, I was interviewed by my friend Ben, who um, loves The Chosen, but we kind of grappled with some of these bigger themes about, can we can we talk about that? Like, can we depict Jesus this way? What is the chosen? Can we depict him? Should we be depicting the apostles this way? And we had a great conversation. So if you're interested in even more Catholic commentary, not on a specific episode, but on the chosen in general, you might check, check out that episode. Again, Catholic Studies podcast, Catholic Studies Academy's podcast, and it's on the chosen. So, okay. Well, God bless. I will talk to you all next episode.